right, welcome. Friends, let's begin with prayer so that we might understand the scripture that we read and that we might be changed by it, okay? Let's pray. Holy Spirit of God, fall afresh on everyone who hears your word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Wait for the crowd to settle down a little bit. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Have any of you ever had an unlikely friendship? You know, I mean by that, right? You and another person who come from very different backgrounds, but somehow you become friends, even close friends. You might have different ideas about the world, maybe different politics and values, and yet somehow it happens, an unlikely friendship. You ever been in any kind of friendship like this? Our scripture passage for today tells of the unlikely friendship between Peter and Cornelius. But before we get there, I just want to tell you about one of my unlikely friendships as a way of, of ramping on to this scripture passage for today. So the friendship begins at First Reformed Church in Holland, Michigan. That's where we meet. He's come for some clothes and a warm meal. I've come because it's my job. I sit down next to him, somewhat nervous, but also intrigued. And he sizes me up, uneasy, yet curious. After some small talk, things get serious pretty quickly when he looks directly into my eyes and asks me, I kid you not, If I came to your church, would I be accepted or not? We both know what he means, but neither of us dares to speak it out loud. What he means is this. Would I be accepted in your church as a black man, or would people look at me with suspicion, with the sense of, you don't belong here? Steve is his name. Here's a picture of him. He's one of my unlikely friends. Steve is smart. He's got both street smarts and he's book smart. He has a charismatic personality and a big smile. The time we meet, he's in his mid-30s. I'm in my mid-20s. Steve was raised as a Jehovah's Witness. They uh, kicked him out when he was a teenager because he wasn't following all the rules. So this meant he wasn't welcomed at the worship services or community events unless he got in line. It also meant in that particular community that he wasn't accepted in his own house, even by his own mother. So Steve tried to make life work on its own. Of course, that never works. This path eventually led to a new home, a place called prison. After seven years in prison, in this home that was hardly a home, Steve tried to find gainful employment. This is an exceedingly difficult thing to do with a felony on your record. Now, on the other side of the friendship, there's me. In the eyes of the world, I'm considered clean. I've jumped through all the right hoops to become associate pastor of First Reformed Church, alongside my co-pastor, trophy wife, Stephanie. Yes, you can tell her I said that later. (laughs) Don't be misled, though. By this point in my life, I have made my fair share of mistakes, The difference between Steve and me is largely a matter of 
environment. My mistakes took place in the environment of a loving family, a forgiving church, and a society that works best for people like me, if I'm honest. How should I respond to Steve's question? Would Steve, a black man, be accepted at the historic Dutch First Reformed Church in Holland, Michigan? What do you think? (laughs) For many of the old-timers at first, embracing diversity meant welcoming anyone who wasn't Dutch. If you ain't Dutch, you ain't much, the old saying goes. It's always kind of said in a joking way, like they don't actually mean it, but you start to wonder after a while. (laughs) Now, in their minds, and I kid you not, First Church in Holland, Michigan, was already a diverse church. We had Dutch and German and English and all sorts of other white Americans in there. Here's the most honest reply to Steve's question that I could think of. Would you be accepted? I hope so. That's all I could say. I hope so. But here's what I was thinking. I hope you'd be accepted. I hope congregants wouldn't view you with fear and suspicion because of the color of your skin. I don't think anyone would say anything overtly racist, but I'm just not sure if people would treat you the same as any other first-time visitor, that is, other first-time visitors who are white. I didn't say all this, but I thought it. All I could say was, I hope so. After an awkward pause, I tried to defend my lack of certainty. Well, I think you'd be accepted by most people, I told him. Jesus most certainly welcomes you. I'd love for you to come. Now, to my surprise, very much surprised, Steve actually came. (laughs) He came, not to the regular worship service at first, but to the several young adult gatherings that Stephanie and I led. First, he came to pub theology at a local brewery that we led. Yes, you heard me right. That was the first place he felt most comfortable going. Then he started playing basketball with us at the church. Then he started meeting one-on-one with me at a coffee shop, playing chess and talking about life. Then he started coming to one of our low-key small groups, and then he came to one of our Bible studies. And finally, after several months of engaging in all these other groups and activities, he joined us for a regular morning worship service. Now notice the progression of commitment. Such is often the case with not yet disciples, considering a life of discipleship to Jesus. So this, my friends, was the making of an unlikely friendship. But it happened because of the grace of God. It happened because God is always one step ahead of us, arranging our circumstances for his purposes. Steve and I still stay in touch from time to time. I texted with him yesterday. And it really is a two-way friendship. I'm grateful to God for all Steve has taught me and for his prayers. What kind of unlikely friendships have you had? I know we must have a room full of them. Maybe uh, you can take a break from normal small talk after the service and ask someone about their unlikely friends. The scripture passage that awaits us tells of another unlikely friendship. Our story story is found in Acts 10. 
This unlikely friendship is between an Italian guy named Cornelius and a Jew named Peter. The eyewitness Luke narrates the story. Now, for the sake of keeping your attention, I'll read the story in four parts, and I'll skip a few parts of it, and then I'll pause in between to reflect on what this all means for us. Acts 10, hear the word of the Lord. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon, about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? He answered, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with another Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him left, he called two of his slaves and a devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him, and after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. We'll pause there for now. This is the word of the Lord. So Cornelius is the first one we meet in this unlikely pairing of friends. There are three things about Cornelius that Luke wants us to know right off the bat. First, that he lives in Caesarea. Now, this doesn't mean much to us, does it? But it did to Luke's original audience. Here's a city. Here's the, here's the map of the, the city of Caesarea. You see it up top here. What else do you notice about the city of Caesarea? Anything? It's on the coast. You like being on the coast? It's, it's warm. You, might, you can't tell it by the picture. It's northwest of Jerusalem, about 70 miles. Jerusalem's the center of religious life for Jews in that day. And it's 30 miles north of Joppa. That's the place Cornelius sends his people. It's a 10-hour trek. So this is what Caesarea looks like today. It's pretty. You can even see here the the first century uh, theater, and you can see the first century port that King Herod built. Here's, here's the port here. You can see some of the, 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 the archi- architecture there. So here's why this location matters to the story. If you recall, the Roman Empire had all the power in those days, and this port that you're looking at was another sign of domination and control. You see, all the traders who wanted to do business in Israel, they were forced to go through this port in Caesarea and to pay a hefty tax while doing so. It's the ancient I-Pass. <laughs> the city soon became the Roman capital of Judea, and Roman governors lived there, including Pontius Pilate. So this was a city where Rome's power was palpable to their conquered subjects, subjects like Jews. You could smell the power of Rome in the air. So what's this have to do with Cornelius? Well, Cornelius lived and worked in Caesarea, and he worked for the Roman Empire. He was a centurion. That's the second thing Luke tells us about him. 
A centurion is a military officer in charge of a hundred people. And he's in charge not just of any group of soldiers, but what's called the Italian cohort. These are perhaps the marines of the Roman military, sent from Italy, the, city, the center of power itself. So let me ask you, and here's where this all comes together. What do you think Jewish fishermen thought of people like Cornelius? You think they hung out after work? Do you think they engaged in casual conversation? Do you think they lived in the same neighborhoods? No. <laughs> Rome had taken over the holy land of the Jews. Rome had enforced their control through relentless brutality. And on the front lines of this violence were people like Cornelius, a centurion of the Italian cohort. So make no mistake about it, Peter is predisposed to hate people like Cornelius. Is there anyone you are predisposed to hate? Maybe not hate, but try this. Is there anyone you are predisposed to fear, to view as a threat, to consider suspicious? Cornelius was all these things to Peter and his fellow Jews. However, there is a third thing that Luke wants us to know about this Roman soldier, and this third set of characteristics begins to break down the stereotype of people like him. Cornelius is what? He is a devout man who feared God. And the praises continue. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. So already in, in God's selecting of this man, Cornelius, we see what God is up to. And as easy of a way as possible, God is trying to undo an age-old rivalry between Jews and Gentiles. God is one step ahead of both Cornelius and Peter, orchestrating events in order to bring them together into an unlikely friendship. It is this friendship, which only God could have imagined, that begins to change the Roman world and the world of the church. Our world, too, if we truly grapple with the implications. But it's not going to be easy. Prejudice and division between groups of people created over generations of history, they do not go away easily or with a snap of our fingers. In human terms, it is impossible. But what's impossible for us is possible for God. God has a plan. God starts by giving Cornelius, the Gentile, a vision, a simple directive, which we just read about earlier. Send men to Joppa to a man named Peter. A military man knows how to follow orders, and so he does. Three of his guys start the 30-mile hike to Joppa. And now that Cornelius, God's been working on him, and now God must work on the other side of the unlikely friendship. That's where we pick up in our story with a second vision. This time it's a vision from God to Peter, the Jew. So hear now the word of the Lord. I really wish this had water in it. I'll just pretend. <laughs> Acts 10, verse 9. About noon the next day, 
As they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered from four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times. And the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of this vision, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. So while Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now, get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. This too is the word of the Lord. This is a classic divine appointment. Have you ever heard of that phrase, divine appointments? It's a meeting between people that obviously, oh, you are a dear. Thank you. Wow, that worked well. <laughs> divine appointment. Have you heard of this phrase, or is it just me in my little bubble? Have anybody heard of it? Raise your hand if you've heard of it. Okay, a few people. Divine appointments, okay? It's a meeting between people that have obviously, a meeting that's been worked out and advanced by God. We see it often in Scripture, case in point, Peter and Cornelius. Many Christians today attest to their own experience of divine appointments. If so, if you've had one of these experiences yourself, then you know that God is in the business of arranging circumstances so that his mission can be furthered. Now, for our part, Like Peter, we have to open our eyes and recognize God's work among us. Thinking back to last week's sermon on spending time with not yet disciples, we should know this. God will arrange meetings between you and not yet disciples. If you pray for it, if you're open to the idea, even if you're not open to the idea, God might still do it. But eventually, God wants your cooperation. And this is how God furthers his mission in our scripture text, and it's still one way God furthers his mission through us. God arranges our circumstances, puts people in our lives, crossing our paths, people whom God is calling us to love, to disciple, to teach the life-giving ways of Jesus. Who are the people God might be putting in your life? How will we respond? Peter responds by arguing, but eventually he lets God have his way. Now, let's take a step back before talking about that. Let's just admit that this vision is pretty confusing to us, isn't it? We are 2,000 years removed from the situation, and we are Gentiles. We are non 
Jews, I think. I don't think there are any, anybody with ethnic Jewish heritage here. So there's much we don't understand from this story, but there's one thing we do understand, and it's this. We know what it's like to get hungry when we pray. Am I right? Come on. Who of you has ever thought about lunch plans during the prayers of the people? Huh? See if it happens today. Let's be honest. Just like Peter, we know what it's like to be praying, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> we're distracted <laughs> by our hunger. So Peter's praying on the rooftop. Maybe he's on the rooftop because it gives him a better view of the beautiful Mediterranean coast. And there he's praying. His belly starts rumbling. So he sends word down to the host family. They start whipping up some lunch, and that's when he has this strange, wild vision. He sees the skies part. A large sheet descends. Inside that sheet are pigs and frogs and pelicans. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. What? (laughs) Gross. And utterly prohibited by the law of Moses. You can read Leviticus 11 for all the animals that were prohibited. But what we have to understand is that God isn't making a menu here. God's making a point. Eating kosher isn't just about etiquette for Jews, both today and in Peter's day. What's at stake here in the mind of a first century Jew like Peter is the life and death of the community, okay? Having a special diet symbolized being a special people, a special people set apart by a special God, the one true God in a world of countless counterfeit gods, So the diet reminds them of the special purpose God has given them, the purpose to worship God alone, and in doing so, to be a light to the nations, okay? As one commentator writes, a little pork here, a pinch of incense to Caesar there, and it will not be long before the faith community will be politely obliterated. That was the viewpoint of Peter, and that's what's at stake in this vision So he's reasonably bewildered, even angry at the suggestion. He argues with the voice, by no means, Lord. But the voice is persistent. What God has made clean, you must not call profane. What has God made clean? (laughs) Is he still talking about animals here? Or is there a deeper meaning at play? I imagine Peter racking his brain trying to remember something Jesus said to to grasp what this means. What God has made clean, you you must not call profane. What, What was it that Jesus said? Peter will eventually discover, as we read along in the story, that God is talking not just about food, but he's talking about Gentiles, non Jews. Non Jews like Cornelius and his friends and us. These are the people whom Jews had viewed as unclean for centuries. The only way for non-Jews to become a part of God's people in Old Testament times, do you know this? It was to reject their ethnic identity, their heritage, and become thoroughly Jewish. And even when this happened, it was still hard for the converts not to feel like they were on the outside looking in. But now... God is doing a new thing through Jesus. The old has served its purpose, but now its time is up. 
The old is about to give way to the new. Old covenant, new covenant. Outsiders are about to become insiders, equal in power, even to the rest of the Jewish believers. On the sole basis of faith in Jesus, outsiders become insiders. So that's what's coming, but right now Peter's puzzled by the vision. Eventually God breaks through on the third try, and Peter invites the Gentiles inside. He even lets them sleep there. This is a big deal because we learn later in verse 28 that, quote, it is forbidden for a Jew to associate or visit with an outsider. They couldn't eat together. (laughs) They certainly couldn't sleep in the same houses, okay? But after a good night's rest, and after Peter has officially broken the law of Moses, the next morning, they all get up together, and they begin a 10-hour hike along the coast from Joppa to Caesarea. Now, what do you think those 10 hours were like? Have you ever walked with someone for 10 hours? <laughs> you think they were all silent and stunned? Do you think they tried to manufacture small talk? Tried to find some things in common? What would they talk about anyways? <laughs> Remember, these Gentiles were military men, and military Gentiles rarely talked with Jews unless they were arresting them. I kid you not. It's not a stretch, it's not a stretch, friends, to think of the challenges in communication between white police and African-American communities. The same barriers to communication had to be crossed between these Gentile soldiers and these Jews. But this was God's plan, that they come together, and God made it obvious to both parties that this unlikely friendship was going to happen If it weren't for God at work, I can't imagine Peter and company finishing the journey. But God was at work, and God is still at work, bringing divided people, even divided races, together on the sole basis of a common faith in Jesus. We pick up the story in verse 33. We're almost finished here. Peter is with six other Jews, all of whom believe the risen Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. And they show up to non-Jews like Cornelius. But now Peter and his partners, they enter the house of Cornelius. Cornelius has gathered a crowd of his friends, his Gentile friends, relatives and close friends. And here's what Cornelius says. He says, now here we are. We're gathered in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has directed you to say. So just picture yourself there. (laughs) Maybe you've never talked to a Jew before. Now you're going to listen to what he has to say because of this man Cornelius, whom you respect, who's a God-fearing man. Here's what Peter says. He starts with this. I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. Rather, in every nation, whoever worships him and does what is right is acceptable to him. This is the message of peace he sent to the Israelites by proclaiming the good news through Jesus Christ. He is Lord of all. Stop there for now. 
Peter's opening line is a stunning confession. He is admitting his past prejudice toward non-Jews. The very people who have invited him to be their guest speaker. Talk about awkward. (laughs) But he's not only admitting his past prejudice, he's moving beyond it with the help and power of God for the sake of Jesus' mission. I really am learning that God doesn't show partiality to one group of people over another. The original Greek here is super interesting. A literal translation reads something like this. I am coming to know the truth, that God is not a prosopolamptes. <laughs> what is a prosopolamptes? It is someone who discriminates. In the context of our passage, it is someone who discriminates based on someone's ethnicity. Peter was discriminating against Gentiles, against everyone who was not a part of the special ethnic chosen people. But God, (laughs) Peter is learning, God is not a prosopolentes. God is not a discriminator. God does not play favorites. God does not view some people as better than other people. Rather, God treats everyone on the same basis, and everyone's about to get in the church on the same basis, faith in the risen Jesus. This is the startling discovery that Peter is just starting to make, thanks to the divine appointment with Cornelius. Before any of this unlikely friendship began to form, Peter was stuck you got to see. Peter was stuck in this popular religious trap of believing that he and his fellow fellow believers were superior to non-believers. Because he followed God, he reasoned that this meant he was more valuable to God than other people. But that's not the case. This religious trap is still around us, and it's waiting to catch us in its claws. I was at a diversity training event a couple weeks ago, uh, invited by a friend of mine, African-American pastor in town. I sat down next to a lady in her late 70s. It became apparent that she wasn't a Christian, and not only that, it became clear that she did not think nice things about Christians. Her and I started talking about the difference between being privileged and being blessed. She told me what she thought. There's no difference. You see, Christians think, this is what her words, Christians think they are blessed by God, chosen by God. Therefore, everyone else has less value. So they can discriminate against people with God's approval. Where does she get that idea from? (laughs) Not the Bible, which from the beginning makes clear that God created all people in God's image. Certainly not from Jesus, who crosses boundaries and reaches out to Samaritan women. Certainly not from the book of Acts in this story. Probably from prejudiced people she's come across in her life, people that call themselves Christians. What this woman doesn't realize is that this attitude is the trap of the devil, not the endorsement of the divine. My friends, we are blessed. (laughs) But we are blessed not for privilege, but for purpose. We are blessed to be a blessing to all people of all nations, non-Christians included. We are blessed to be broken, just like Jesus. We are called to 
pour out our lives in costly, sacrificial love for those who are not yet disciples. That's what it means to be blessed in Jesus' version. That's what Peter is coming to learn. Thanks to God's interruption in his life, may, may we learn it too, and may people like the 70-year-old that I talked with, may she come across Christians that reverse her stereotype. We are blessed to be broken. So Peter learns this, and he declares, Jesus Christ is Lord of all. That's the good news. He is the one, verse 42, whom God has appointed judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that every, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, while Peter was still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell on everyone who heard the word. The circumcised believers, that is the Jews, who had come with Peter were astonished. They were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They heard them speaking in other languages and praising God. And Peter asked, (laughs) said, these people have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. (laughs) Surely no one can stop them from being baptized with water, can they? So he directed that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited Peter to stay for several days. Surely no one can stop God's inclusion of outsiders in the family. Surely no one in the church can ever say to another person, you don't belong here. If they seem a little unclean, remember, God has the power to make clean even the dirtiest of us. Weren't we all unclean before God covered us in the blood of Jesus, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Everyone, says Peter, Jew or Gentile, virtuous pagans like Cornelius or zealous persecutors like Saul, everyone may now turn to God. That is how the unlikeliest of friendships is created, by the grace of Jesus Christ. By the grace of Jesus Christ, we too are friends of God. So may we extend a hand of friendship to all those who are not like us. Amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs> I would like to uh, invite John Borman up at this point. Where is, where is John? All right. Uh, so if you recall from the heartbeat, we wanted to start doing something called a mission moment. You may be familiar with this concept from other churches. It's essentially a moment in which we invite someone from the congregation to talk about how they are involved in God's mission. How is Christ's mission being seen and and, and lived out in their own lives? And to to start, I I invited uh, the consistory, one of our consistory members, John, to to talk a little bit about um, our own experience as a consistory. We've been talking about outreach We've been talking about mission.